And Jesus said, Many, many years ago, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That is true for a family. That is true for a church. It is true for a nation as well. And so people are at each other's throats on social media. While I was on a vacation, um, I, I <laughs> no social media. I'll tell you what, I, that's why I'm refreshed, okay? <laughs> Please get off the social media. Uh, the wars are going on in social media between friends. People are defriending each other. They are, you know, like, I don't want to see you anymore. I have a friend who I went to junior high and high school with, known for many, many, many years, and he has, uh, you know, a mutual friend that we all went to school with, had him over to his house, and they had a wonderful time together. and seen each other in a long, long time and had, you know, a meal together, and then they began discussing politics, and one's Republican, one's Democrat, and uh, this individual posted, he says, I don't know what happened, he said, but by the time we were were done with each other. We were like almost in a fist fight, yelling, screaming, cussing at each other, flipping each other off, and on and on it went. So uh, this is kind of where we are as a, as a country. And think about how much time, money, education, political maneuvering that we have put into all of these issues in our country over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And yet some things have gotten better, but most things have become worse. And so you have to ask yourself the question, why is that? Although, um, you know, the answer is um, that everybody believes <laughs> they have the solution and to the problem, right? Everybody believes, well, if we will do just do this, 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 and this, then, you know, this will all go away. We'll all sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya and uh, have a wonderful time as a nation. Well, it will never happen, and here's why. Because we are fighting the wrong war. You're fighting the wrong war. If you're fighting the wrong war, you're never going to, to win the war. And so the Bible put it this way. It's clearly Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 says, We do not fight against flesh and blood. But what we do fight against are rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, the war that was fought in the heavenly realms came to earth and is being fought here on planet earth, and we are a part of it. We're not fighting each other, although we are fighting each other in our country. We're fighting the wrong war. The war isn't with each other. The war is against the principalities and the powers, and the war in the heavenly realm that was brought down to planet earth, that's the war we have to learn how to fight. And so the, really the big idea in this whole series is simply this, is that there was a war that erupted in heaven, and in that war, Jesus and the angelic beings defeated our enemy, Satan, and his demonic beings, a third of the angelic beings who sided with Satan in his war against God and his throne, and that war then was cast down to earth, and now every single one of us have been born into that war that is being played out on planet earth. Therefore, everything that is happening in the seen world is being displayed as what is happening in the unseen world. And so that's the war you have to fight. It's the war of the heavenly realms if you're going to have victory here on planet earth or in your life personally. And so one day Jesus will come back, the Bible says, and he will win the war on earth as he won the war in heaven, and he will take Satan, his demonic beings, and all of their evil, and he will cast them into the lake of fire known as Gehenna, and forever, for all of eternity, all of the evil and the sin and all the devastation will be put to rest once and for all. But in the meantime, 
We are in this war that is a collision of two kingdoms. And there are two kingdoms residing here on earth. And the war is between those two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Satan or darkness, and there is the kingdom of God. Those are the warring kingdoms. And there is a cosmic conflict that is happening that you and I are a part of. So every single human being is either a part of the kingdom of Satan or you're the kingdom, a part of the kingdom of God. And if you're a part of the kingdom of God, you're going to be warring against that of the kingdom of Satan because that's just exactly what it is. And by the way, the United States is not the kingdom of God. Just in case you were wondering. Both kingdoms have a culture. And when one culture conflicts with the other culture, there's a war. And so what happens is, is when you have two conflicting cultures, rather than fighting the real war, we fight one another. And this is what the Bible warns against. This is what Paul was saying. We're not fighting against each other. It's not flesh and blood fight. It is a cultural war because you have two cultural kingdoms that are colliding with one another, and we're all part of one or the other. So how do we fight this battle without taking it out on each other? How do we fight this war in a way that God has called us to fight it? Every day, the practical decisions that you make in life, you have to wage a war. And what you decide affects both kingdoms, both the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And so the Bible says there's only one of two ways that you and I can live life. We can either live life driven by the flesh or driven by the spirit. Now, the flesh, the unredeemed part of us, the sin nature, um, uh, is a part of the culture of the kingdom of Satan, and obviously the spirit of God is a part of the culture of the kingdom of God. And so those two come in conflict. That's why we have personal spiritual war as well as spiritual warfare that plays itself out through our cultural Um, war that is happening in our own country in the here and now. And so Satan always attacks on the level of relationships because God created us as relational people. So in this series, we're going to be talking about the war that you have relationally that Satan's fighting against you on, relationally with God, relationally with yourself, relationally with others, relationally even in the church. It is amazing how many church splits happen throughout our country in a given year, thousands. There is a war that goes on in the church, and so flesh and blood starts fighting each other rather than seeing the war for what it is, the problem behind the problem, the war behind the war, and thus dealing with it in a biblical manner. So here is my bias, here is my premise for this entire series. It's simply this. The gospel applied is the answer to every single problem you face in life, and it's the answer to every single problem our country is facing. It's the answer to every single problem our world faces. Now, I said the gospel applied, not the gospel ignored, not the gospel just acknowledged, but the gospel applied. Jesus has the power to break the change. Jesus has the power to make the changes. And it's the gospel applied to the situation that enables us to experience the freedom that Jesus came for us to experience. So that when we have conflict, we don't have to have conflict that results in, you know, devastation. That is, results in the splitting of relationships or the friendships that, you know, they have to walk a different way. 
Now, it might be that you are, you know, you're, you're living heaven, up, heaven down, culture of the kingdom, and the person you're dealing with is, is still in the, living in the culture of Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and there can be no reconciliation. I get that. I understand that. But still, the gospel applied can um, approach that from a whole different perspective than when the gospel is not being applied by God's people. So, no matter how many tears we shed, how many bodies we bury, how many elections we hold, how many government programs we fund, how many wars we rage, wage, how many taxes we raise, how many degrees we earn or medications we subscribe to, all of humanity has the potential in bringing evil to the table. And we know that because that's what the Bible tells us. A culture in our day and time would say, well, no, mankind is basically good and, and we're evolving upward. Really? Have you looked at our last 6,000 years of history? Where are we evolving upward? The Bible teaches us the exact opposite, that we come into the world with sin natures. We come into the world with hearts that are bent towards evil, that hearts that are you know, deceived, deceiving and deceptive and and creates all kinds of havoc in our lives personally and in the lives of people around us. We have potential, but that potential has to be brought about through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel being applied. Because something has gone terribly wrong in our world, and um, our world does not have the solution. If you want to find the solution to what's going on in our world, you have to go to another world to find that solution, and the other world is God's kingdom. And that's why God has given us the word of God enabled to enable us to understand what is the problem behind the problem, what is the war behind the war, so that we know how to attack the war in which we find ourselves in. We are unable and incapable of diagnosing the problems of history personally apart from understanding the problem behind the problem. And anyone can see the problems, right? <laughs> Look around, right? We, we see it every day. We deal with it every day. We encounter it every single day. So in order to understand God's world, you must open God's word. Because it's there you find and understand God's world. You cannot understand the world God has made unless we understand the word that God wrote. Because ultimately... We are not just physical beings. We are spiritual beings who live in two different realms at the same time. Now, so we have the heavenly realm. We have the earthly realm. We have the unseen realm. We have the seen realm, the invisible, the visible. We would look at that as two separate realms. God looks at it as one and the same. Although it's lived out in two different, you know, we, we are physical beings and therefore we are limited to what is visible. We are limited to this realm, but the unseen realm is very much engaged and involved in what is happening in the visible realm we call planet Earth. And so those two realms are colliding. We're in the middle of it. We're a part of that war. And so we need to look at what God has to say about dealing with it. Well, this sermon, I just want to tell you from the outset, is going to be kind of a theological foundation. If we're going to understand about, because I want you to have a thorough understanding about what's happening, a thorough understanding about the kingdom of God, how God's designed his kingdom, how his kingdom operates, because here's what's happened in the church over the last many, many years, is that Christianity, rather than 
um, moving into the culture of Satan's realm and transforming that culture through the power of the gospel, we have begun to mirror that culture and become like that culture. And we've tried to take the cultural realm of Satan's kingdom and superimpose that upon the kingdom of God's realm and in the church. And then we wonder why the church has become anemic and why the church over the past 10, 15 years is slowly dying in America. Or I shouldn't even say slowly, it's picked up a lot of pace. Because we've tried to take the world's concept and bring it into the church when in fact the church is to be salt and light in the culture in which we find ourselves in the world. We are to be in the world but not of the world. We are to be salt and light in that culture, but you don't have to do it in a way that is you know, just absolutely um, judgmental, which are some of the terms that unbelievers will always use when say, hey, what do you think about when you think about a Christian or the church? Well, they're hypocritical, they're judgmental, they're da-da-da-da-da. And, and some of that, those um, labels are unfair, but some of those labels are justified on the basis of the way they've been treated by so-called believers. So, again, because we've forgotten we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against principalities and powers and authorities in the air, right? So here we're going we're gonna to look at kind of the framework of which we're going to operate out of. So number one is this. So if you have your outline, if you've got an outline, the first three fill in the blanks where there's a war between the two kingdoms here on planet Earth being fought. We're a part of it. You can live from one of two ways, driven by the flesh or the spirit. The gospel applied is the answer to every problem we face in life and in our world. So God has essentially two families. He has a divine family, and he has a human family. And so let's look, first of all, at that divine family. Now, we are in the book of Job, and you'll recall that Job, uh, um, at the beginning of this book, God is having a conversation with Satan, right? Satan's fallen angel has been kicked out of heaven by now. He's having this conversation, and, and Satan says to God, in essence, about Job, hey, the only reason this guy loves you, the only reason he worships you, the only reason he follows you is because you have so blessed his life. Man, I'll tell you what, if you let me just touch his life in a negative way, I'm telling you, he's going to curse you to your face. That's the essence of the conversation. God says that right. Say, so say, you better believe it's right. Okay, have at it. But I'm going to put some restrictions on you. You can't take his life. And so, um, you know what, if you've read the story, you know that, uh, well, all of a sudden, Job loses, he loses everything. He loses his children. He loses his business. He loses his home. He loses his health. He's got boils all over his body. He's picking the skin off of himself while sitting on an ash heap. And the only thing left behind was his wife who comes to him and says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, there's encouragement uh, from your wife. And uh, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. So here we have um, Job is, you know, he's, he's trying to figure out why all this is happening to him, just like any of us would. Right? So he has some friends who come along, four friends, and, you know, for the first week, they're pretty silent. They just kind of sit with Job and just kind of their, 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 their uh, arm around him and saying, Job, you know, we're, we're praying with you. And they just kind of sat in silence. But then they begin to speak. And as they began to speak, Job was thinking to himself, I wish you'd just remain silent. Because they had their own philosophy as to why these things were happening to Job. You know, Job, you obviously you got some sin in your life that uh, God's punishing you for. Or obviously, you've done this and on and on. And so Job gets kind of fed up with his friends. And so Job does, you know, obviously he's struggling inside. And he begins to, to ask God some questions. 
right? And says, so, okay, God, um, if we're going to have this, if we're going to have this, this, this deal between us, I've got some questions for you. And so he starts firing his questions at God, and God now is going to speak back to him. This is where chapter 38 picks up the story. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, who, who is it that the darkness darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. In other words, put on your big boy pants. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you? When I laid the earth's foundation, tell me if you understand. Who, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? You know, who measured this whole thing out? Oh, uh, what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted with joy. Now, there's a key verse. Because here's what God's, God is giving you a glimpse of his divine family as he's making a statement to an earthly being. In other words, God is saying, when I laid the foundations of this world, when I created the heavens and the earth, because he says, where were you when I laid the foundation? You know, evolution does not answer that question. God does. You, evolution may speculate about it, but God was there and he answers the question. He says, I'm the one who did it. I preexisted, and everything that exists belongs to me and for me and is created by me. And there are two categories of divine beings here. Now, again, he's speaking to Job, who is in the visible scene realm. But as he's speaking to Job, he's making reference to, to what was going on in the unseen, invisible realm as God was creating this planet upon which we have been placed. Now, this is going on pre-Job's existence, pre-humanity's existence. And so God is going to show how his divine family intersects with the earthly family, how his divine realm intersects with the earthly realm, and the two affect one another. And so he refers here to this unseen world that is brought down to earth and to the life of Job. Now, he uses... Two, um, two phrases here. He says in verse um, 7 that while he's doing this, the morning stars sang together. Who are the morning stars? The morning stars are a reference to angels, to angels. In the ancient language um, and understanding in the ancient times, there's the heavens and there's the earth and there's the in-between. And what's in between heaven and earth? Stars. Right? And so they viewed the angelic beings of God as representatives that stand between God and humanity. And so the morning stars are a reference to the angelic beings. In other words, God has a divine family who was witnessing his creative activity as he fashioned this world for the realm of humanity. Now, the second thing you see there is called the sons of God. Now, if you have the NIV translation, it says morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. But there is a footnote because that is a bad translation. In the Hebrew, it is the phrase, the sons of God. Sons of God. And so what are the, who are the, the sons of, of God? Well, again, these are a reference um, to... Um, to kind of a, a hierarchy that is established within the realm of God's angelic beings. So um, 
We'll get there in a moment. Now, basically, again, these are angelic beings, but there are different kinds of angelic beings. Not that they're different in, in structure, in, in, in authority, in um, a kind of a, a, an authority hierarchy kind of system. So we see this in the demonic realm when Paul says that we fight against, you know, against the authorities and powers. Those are angelic, demonic, angelic, a hierarchy, command centers, um, kind of a different levels of angelic beings. And so angels in the ancient mind were seen as messengers of God and also ministers of the Lord between God and humanity. And so they were kind of like on the, the lowest rung of of, uh, they're kind of like God's mail carriers. They were kind of like on the lowest rung of the angelic hierarchy. And so within there, there's a hierarchy. There are angelic beings who have more and more authority in the angelic realm. Now, the reason we know that this is a structure is because, we'll flesh this out in a minute, is that that's the way exactly the way God's going to set it up in the future kingdom, right? When you and I are raptured out of this world and we stand at the judgment seat of Jesus and we are judged upon what we have done in this, this lifetime... He says that you are going to receive rewards. And a part of that reward is not everyone's going to be on equal footing in heaven. There are going to be those who are given more authority. He says, you know, I've given you uh, command over five cities. Now I'm going to give you command over ten cities because of what you've done. And so there's going to be a hierarchy of authority in God's realm throughout all of eternity. And it's not we're going to be jealous of each other. There's no jealousy between the angelic beings. There's not jealousy, there's no envy, there's none of that going on in the heavenly realm because that's sin and sin's not going to exist. But we're not always all going to have the same level of authority or assignment as others. So this is what's happening in the, in the angelic realm. Now most of people who have think about angels have very, very little biblical knowledge about angels. Most people think, when they think about angels, they think about Michelangelo's painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You've got these fat little chubby little babies who have wings and harps and on a cloud, and, and the wings are like 10 times smaller than the baby is, this chubby baby. Like, how are you going to move from one place to another for very far because the wings don't seem to be appropriate for the body size? Right, so that's most people's concept of, of angelic beings. It's like Friday night, my wife and I watched this movie. I will not recommend it. Uh, it's called Blanche. And really, it's, it's, it's about a movie about these two farmers in the 1950s. They were ranchers. They'd grown up together, went to school together, ranched all their lives. They're both retired. One of them, his wife dies. He becomes a recluse on his land, ranch, so his buddy's trying to you know, cheer him up and pull him off the ranch and get him back engaged in society again. And All of their lives, been, they've been making bets, all right? And so, uh, stupid bets. And so the guy who's, who's kind of the recluse, he's the one who's always winning the bets. And so his friend comes to say, I want to make a bet with you because the, the guy who's the recluse, he has a chicken named Blanche. And it's like it was his best friend. I mean, he, he, he hugged Blanche, fed her by hand, and just like she was like his personal dog, you know, and just like, oh, you know. And so he says, I, I'm going to make a bet. I'm going to make the bet that if we take Blanche, your chicken, and my rooster and put him in a plane at 1,000 feet, drop them out, that my rooster can outfly Blanche. He says, okay, we'll take, I'll take the bet. And so, uh, well, well, Peter got a hold of that, 
And so then it, because, it became a big uproar because they believed that, you know, chickens can't fly, and therefore if you drop them out of the plane, they're both going to splat and die. And so they had a huge, huge court case over this in the town in which they lived. And so the two guys who were ranchers, they won the court case, and sure enough, they went up, took the plane. They had a friend who, who was a crop duster. He took the plane up, dropped the chicken and the rooster out. Who do you think won? Blanche, right? The chicken one, right? She was able to float longer, and, and they don't like really, but have you ever seen the wings of chicken? They're not very big, like not for their body size, but they were able to kind of float down. Where am I going with all this? I have no idea, but this is kind of the concept that people have of angels, right? Like he's got these little wings, or the other myth that people believe about angels is that when babies die, they become angels, or when people die, they become angels. No, they don't. That's Hollywood. That is not scripture, angelic beings are God's divine family created apart from humanity. God has a divine family and a human family and are not one and the same. We do not become angels. You are not going to get wings and you're not going to be strapped with a harp when you get to heaven, all right, floating around on a cloud somewhere. That is not what the Bible teaches. So the question is how many angels are there? You know angels are spoken of 300 times in Scripture in 90% of the books of the Bible. They play a huge, huge role in our lives, and we don't even understand it. But I hope by the end of this series you're going to understand exactly how angels play a role in your life in spiritual warfare. Right? So how many angels are there? The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says that they are innumerable, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000. All we know is that their number seems to be fixed because Jesus says angels do not marry, and they do not multiply, although theoretically, certainly God could create more angels if he wanted to, but we don't find that in the scripture. There are only three angels that are named in the Bible, and that is Michael and Gabriel, who are two of God's angels, and Lucifer, who was an angel created by God, who rebelled against God, and was cast out of heaven with, along with a third of the angelic beings who sided with him, now known as demons in the scripture. Um, those are the only three angels that are named, but there are multiple categories of angels. There are archangel. We, we read about archangel. That's a military term, defines rank, sense of commanding something. Um, you have cherubim, we have seraphim angels, kind of a, our majestic beings that you see in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 when God was displaying himself in his throne and the seraphim were flying around him, each having six wings and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, we, there's guardian angels. People ask me all the time, does everybody have a guardian angel? I don't know. The Bible doesn't specifically say Maybe we do, maybe we don't. I'm not sure, but certainly the Bible does refer to them. The Bible says that we sometimes we entertain angels unaware, so that um, angels they don't they don't draw attention to themselves. They're always pointing us to Jesus, right? Angel. The word angel means messenger. So just because don't assume that God is not at work because you can't see him at work. His angelic beings may be doing a whole lot of work on your behalf that you are absolutely unaware of in the spiritual realm. And we'll talk about that in the future. So back to the sons of God. Now, they can't be physical people he's referring to because he had not created physical people yet, right? Remember, he's creating planet Earth, for preparing it for humanity. And so, um, again, uh, the heart of God just seems that, that there's these... The, the fatherhood of God is seen here. He calls them sons, which is why I say they're like a divine family. And so when you look at the angels, um, there's, there's so much uniqueness about them. 
and we have such little knowledge of them. It's been a long, long time since I've done a series here on angels, probably 15 years. Maybe we need to resurge that. But I just want you to know that angels and Satan do not share in God's attributes. They are created beings. They are not all-knowing. They're not all-powerful. They're not omnipresent. They are not um, sovereign. They're not to be worshipped. Those attributes are exclusively for God. And so one of the questions that people ask all the time about angels, well, why did God make angels? Does God need angels? No, he doesn't need angels. Does he need you? No, he doesn't need you. He didn't create angels or us because he needs us. He created us because he loves us and love displays itself in such a manner. And so you have God's divine family and you have God's human family. That's where we come in. And so here's all I want you to see is we're laying this theological foundation is that although you can't see the angelic beings and even if one takes on a human form, the Bible says you, you wouldn't even be aware that it's an angel. I just want you to see that you are not alone in this spiritual warfare that you're engaging in. God has summons the unseen realm, the angelic world, to operate on your behalf and on mine. And then we have another aspect, and probably you've never heard of, and it's called God's divine counsel. So... Keep going to the right and go to Psalm 80, 82. Psalm 82. Let me just flesh this out for a minute, and I'm going to give you four pillars, and we're done. I just wanted to call your attention to something. Again, this is going to kind of speak of the hierarchy of the angelic beings. And um, if you're interested in this, um, Dr. Michael Heiser uh, has written books on this, um, fascinating reading. So Psalm 82.1 says this. It says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods, plural. All right, so the word God here is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the very first word in uh, Genesis. God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. But now notice it refers to gods in the plural. Um, and so are these like other gods? Are there multiple gods? Because there are people who have plucked this verse out and said, see, there's proof, there's multiple gods. No, in, in this particular instance, the word gods there, little gods, that's also the Hebrew word Elohim. And uh, he's referring here in this particular passage as he fleshes out Psalm 82, he's referring to um, some judges that he has put into place over Israel And the reason we know that is because down in verse 6, he says, I said, you are gods, you are all the sons of the Most High, but you will will die like men, you know, like mere men. And so it can't be angelic beings because angelic beings are eternal. They're not going to die. But needless to say, when the term Elohim is used, sometimes it refers to God. Sometimes it refers to a special assignment for humanity But more often than not, it is a word that is used in reference to the angelic beings or the unseen world or God's divine counsel. So for that, go to Psalm 89 in verse um, 5. The heavens praise your your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness to in in the assembly of the holy ones. 
You know, circle, the assembly of the holy ones. Who is that? For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. So you have this assembly of holy ones, heavenly beings, council of, of, um, of holy ones. What is he referring to? And he's, he's referring to here as a kind of a task force of beings who, um, are a, who are a part of God's assembly or court or, um, as he describes them here, as the holy ones, the council of God. So what is he referring to here? Where he's referring to the hierarchy of the angelic system, and there seems to be those who are part of God's divine council, and they make observation as God is moving and creating and doing things, but also at times God dispatches them to do things on his behalf. And in 1 Kings 22, we see where God gives the divine council the opportunity to make a decision that is going to affect planet Earth. And so there's this, this hierarchical structure among the angelic beings, and a part of that structure is, is God's divine counsel. And so, again, the word Elohim, it refers primarily to inhabitants of the unseen spiritual world. And that can include God's God and angels or fallen angels or demons or any other spiritual beings, and occasionally... Uh, very rarely, it can refer to also uh, humanity. And so here's what I want you to understand is that any resident of the unseen realm called Elohim, you know, in our day and time, we refer to people as in different ages and races and nationalities, but we're all part of the human race. That's the concept of Elohim. This is why racism is so demonic is because we are taking somebody and making a judgment call on the basis and the color of their skin without even knowing the person, right? So, but we're all part of the human race. I don't care what color your skin is. And therefore, um, this is the concept behind Elohim. And so this divine council throughout Scripture is the assembly referred to as the holy ones, or the council of the holy ones, the host, the seat of God, the court of assembly. And occasionally, the divine council shows up in activity here on earth. And we've discovered this in the book of Genesis with Jacob when he has the ladder that is descending from heaven to earth. And the angels are up and down the ladder. It is, it is a part of the divine council reference as Jesus speaks to Jacob, and then Jacob says, after he's seen what he has seen, this, I'm naming this place Bethel. It is the house of God. It is the place of God's divine counsel. So I just want you to know that even God's divine counsel has interaction with us. So let's wrap this up. Um, in, in Revelation chapter um, 12 and verses 7 through 9, um, we, we get a glimpse of this war that took place in heaven. And as Satan is waging war in his his, um, you know, his, his coup against God. And Jesus said at one time, I, in, I think in the Gospel of Luke, I saw G, that Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And, and I want you, here's what I want you to know about that, is that although Satan declares war on God, God isn't the one that does the warring. His angelic beings do the warring. Because Satan is in no way on God's level. God doesn't even have to lift a finger to defeat Satan. He uses, he uses angelic beings to put him 
in his place. And so um, God doesn't engage with Satan as peers or as equals because they are not, even though Satan would want you to believe that he is an equal with God. Everybody, therefore, is born into this world in this, amid this governance of war. And I use the word governance speaks of your loyalty. Where does your loyalty lie? Who are you going to follow? And so the war that came from heaven to earth is all about the governance of, of a war. Who are, who's your loyalty going to be to and who are you ultimately going to follow? And so every single human being born in this world is born into Satan's kingdom. We have a, the Bible says we, have, we were born with the, as children of wrath. And the only way I get a new nature is through what? The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way I get a transfer out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, Colossians 1.13, is through the power of the gospel being applied to my life. That's the only way I get a lift out of Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom. It's the only way my nature begins to change, my heart begins to be made new, and that the Holy Spirit now inside of me enables me to do what I could never do on my own. So here's the four pillars of, unbiblical, of, of a biblical, biblical worldview. I'll just elaborate just a second here on them. Number one is the unseen realm. You cannot believe God's word or understand God's world unless you embrace the supernatural. So that's why Paul, again, he says, struggles not against flesh and blood. It's in the heavenly realms. What is the heavenly realms? Let's not refer to heaven. It describes a sphere of authority where God and Satan do battle for allegiance and obedience where spiritual decisions are made. Who are we going to align ourselves with? And so God uses the supernatural. We see the supernatural all through the Bible. But over the years, the church got away from the supernatural. And we bought into what is called rationalism and naturalism and skepticism. And so basically, um, rationalism believed that you can't believe anything unless you can see it through a telescope or a microscope, unless you can put it in a lab and test it and, and to make sure and to prove it to be worthy of truth or existence through scientific method. Now, I'm not against scientific method. I'm not against science. I love science. For me, here, I define science as man simply trying to, def, to, um, to understand what God already knows. That's all really science is. And so, um, so this, as if this evolved, and then all of a sudden, rationalism developed into naturalism, which is the worldview that we only have the material world, and the spiritual world really doesn't exist, and it's kind of skeptical if it does exist, and you can't prove it exists. I mean, how can you prove that God created the heavens and the earth, and how can you prove that there was actually a flood? And Because these are things that only happen one time. They're not repeatable, and scientific method requires something that be repeatable so that you can test the worthiness of it before you make it a law, right? And so um, then that evolved into... Um, Skepticism, which led to atheism and denial of God altogether, that evolves ultimately into humanism, which says that man is at the center of everything. We're at the center of the world, and we, have to, we are left unto ourselves to solve the world's problems, and if we can't do it, it just won't happen. Because we refuse to acknowledge the unseen spiritual world, the supernatural 
The British philosopher Hume came into the existence of that and uh, began to evolve that in Christianity. So that by the time uh, as all that began to unravel, for example, if you read the Gospel of John and you read about Jesus walking on water out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and Peter says, hey, can I come out and join you? And he jumps out of the boat. If you pick up a commentary by William Barclay who, who buys into the, um, the, you know, the, the um, non-supernatural kind of ex- explanation of Scripture, here's how he will, he'll spell this out in, the, in, in his commentary. He'll say, well, what really happened is Jesus... Jesus was just walking like he was just a little way off the shore, and the disciples, you know, it was dark, and they couldn't hardly see, and he's really only in water that deep, and it just appeared that he was walking on water, but he really wasn't walking on water, and so that's really what happened. Are you kidding me? Peter's a fisherman. Do you think he knows the difference between being on the shoreline and being out in the middle of the stinking lake? I think he does. And by the way, how in the world do you start, how do you start fall and falling and drowning in water that deep? I don't get it. But see, you, you have to have, a, if you can't prove it, it couldn't happen. So what happened is we begin to cut out all the supernatural activity of God out of the Bible to give a humanistic explanation for it. You can read commentaries where it says about the Sea of Gat, you know, the Red Sea when it was split and the, and the nation of Israel goes across and the armies of you know, the Egyptians are coming after them and say, well, that wasn't really that, 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 that bad. It was like three feet deep, and they just kind of waded through there. How do you drown an Egypt, entire Egyptian army in three feet of water? So this has filtered down into the mindset of God's people and the mindset of the church, and we kind of thrown the supernatural out of the window. Uh, my goal in this series is to equip you with the sword of God's word, because I want you to know the supernatural is very much still alive and well. Number two is binary thinking. Binary thinking is simply this. Um, Christians think in terms of black and white. That's binary thinking. Non-Christians think in terms of, of the shades of gray. For example, you can have metal without rust, but you can't have rust without metal. That's a binary thought. So let's put this on the spiritual level. <laughs> As that God is the creator who made everything good, and Satan came along and corrupted everything that he made good. God is the one who creates, and Satan then simply counterfeits. So binary thinking, and I've put some examples on your outline, God, Satan, angels, demons, holiness, sin, obedience, rebellion, truth, lies, it's black and white, either or, spirit-filled, demonically-filled, Humility, pride, forgiveness, bitterness, worship, idolatry, contentment, coveting, peace, fear, revival, riot. Now, see, culture won't accept this because that means you're making a distinction, which ultimately ends up in making a value judgment. So here's how culture will flesh this out, not in binary thinking. They'll say, well, Satan and God, no, we have a higher power, right? Instead of demons and angels, no, there's spirits, and there might be ghosts out there, Instead of sin and holiness, no, we have lifestyle choices. Instead of lies and absolute truth, I have my truth, you have your truth, you live out your truth, I'll live out my truth, we'll we'll all get along. Because we do that so well, right? Instead of wolves and shepherds, we have spiritual guides. Instead of heaven and hell, we have whatever works for you. You see the subtleness of Satan? How he's completely change the entire framework of the human mind and how you view things. 
We could give you an example of that out of the book of Exodus, but we're going to move on. Number three, a guilt group. A group guilt. So when the fall takes place, and we're going to look at that in detail next week, let me just say this. Uh, so when, when, um, when Eve is tempted and she, she gives over into, to Satan's, you know, Satan comes along and he, he attacks God's character, he questions God's word, she gives into the temptation, and then, you know, Adam's there with her, he also get, you know, dives into it. And so the ultimate question is, well, Satan is obviously behind this in the form of a serpent. Have you ever wondered why she wasn't afraid of this serpent? Because, watch this, because God sees the two realms, heavenly realms and the earthly realm as one, right? And so obviously uh, when Adam and Eve were on planet earth, they not only had access with God who walked with them in the cool of the day, but they probably also saw a lot of angelic beings. They probably had interaction. And so Satan, you, I mean, how else can you explain how a serpent can come who's like the dragon in the form of a serpent and like she's not like running away like why I've never seen this before I've never, and then he questions and so the question is who committed the first who brought the first sin was it Eve because she gave into the serpent or was it Adam or was it the serpent you know disguised as Satan who, who's responsible please understand every single one of them why is this important because we have a tendency to want to let, blame somebody else for everything that's going wrong in our lives. Watch this. Which evolves into a victim mentality, which means you owe me, and if I, you owe me, the problem is you'll never pay enough to pay me back. That is the mindset of our culture in our society. Everybody's a victim. You owe me, and therefore... You've got, to, you've got to pay me, but it's never enough. Therefore, I'm never content. I'm never satisfied. It's always more. It's always bigger. It's always greater. And that creates all kinds of havoc in a society. And we'll, we'll, we'll spell this out. You know, this demonic governance war, notice he, he attacks the head. He always does. Satan went against who? In the heavenly realms. God, right? Because God's the head of, of all things. And so he... He goes against Adam, who's what? The head of the human race. He goes against Jesus in, because Jesus was the head of what? The second Adam. He was the second, the, 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 coming for the human race. He, he attacks Peter. Why did he attack Peter? Because he was the head of the church. I just want you to say this, you to understand. If you are the head of anything, a ministry, your family, whatever, Satan's coming after you. He's gunning for you. And he's going to come at you hard. And he's going to come at you with all barrels blazing. All right, here's uh, the fourth one. And that is heaven, up, heaven down or hell up. And so in the reality of the seen and the unseen world, remember you only can be a member of what? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? You can only live driven by the spirit or driven by the flesh. Both kingdoms have a culture. What is the culture of heaven? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. What's the culture of hell? Hatred, discord, unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, self-righteousness. Every moment of every single day, you are making decisions that will determine whether you're going to live heaven down or hell up. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I give you this in closing. Um, 
One of the ways that we pull hell up into our lives is through the subtle lies of Satan that Paul refers to as the schemes of the evil one. He says, do not fall for them. Be aware of them. Be on guard. Be watching. Be prepared. Armor up. Because these are the lies that Satan's going to bring to your life that you think are like, nah, has a ring of truth. And here they are. I'm just going to rattle them off, and we'll look at them one week at a time. And this is it. All right, you ever heard this one? God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. You know how, many, how much stuff has gone on because people just said to them, well, you know, God wants me to be happy. Here's one. You only live once. Number three, you need to live your truth. You got to live your truth. Your feelings are reality. Your life is what you make it. You need to let go and let God. How many times have I heard that one? Just let go and let God. Yes, a lie of the enemy. I'm going to prove to you. The cross is not about wrath. And here's one I've heard since I was. God helps those who help themselves. These are very subtle, but yet profoundly destructive lies that even God's people have fallen prey to and wonder why we can't get set free. Jesus says you can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, Father, we thank you. We bless you. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for the glimpse into the unseen realm that you give to us in Scripture I pray, Father, again, as we continue in this series, that, Father, you will just um, make known to us. Help us to see. Give us new, fresh eyes with which to see. The spiritual realm that is is, um, at war with us, but yet the side of that realm, oh God, that is warring with us and for us rather than against us. God, help us to see our place in this world. Help us to understand how we can walk in this victory that we don't have to sit on the side of the hill cowering in fear because the enemy is in the valley like Goliath against Israel, just taunting them day in, day in, day out. We don't have to do that with our enemy. We can be like David and step out onto the battlefield and win the war. You've won the ultimate war. We can win the war that we deal with day in and day out in our lives. So God, I pray that you help us take truth and assimilate that into the core of our being that we might walk more victorious day in and day out. And that, Father, we would then be the salt, the light, that signs, wonders, and miracles would be displayed through us to a lost and dying world that we know that you love and care so, so much for. So help us, oh God, to become what we cannot become on our own. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.